Good evening, everybody, and welcome to the first of this year's Women of Achievement lectures. I'm Rebecca Surrender, Pro Vice Chancellor for Equality and Diversity, and it's my very great pleasure to welcome you all here this evening and, of course, to introduce our guest speaker tonight, the Right Honourable Helen Clark. It's really great to see so many people here in what must be um, probably the busiest night or certainly week of the university calendar year. Um, we could have filled this venue several times over if we could have found a venue, Helen, I'm, I'm sorry. Um, but it's obviously a great testament um, to the interest in, in hearing our speaker tonight. This series is dedicated to showcasing and celebrating women's varied and many successes and accomplishments. Not only to celebrate the success, but also to better understand the particular dynamics surrounding women's advancement to leadership positions and to motivate other women here at Oxford and the wider community. We therefore asked all our speakers to talk about not only their substantive field of work and expertise, but also their experiences and challenges as women in these roles. And this evening we're going to try a slightly different format. We're not going to have a traditional lecture, as you can see, and you're perhaps um, guessing, but we're going to have a conversation, a, a structured discussion, a, a semi-structured interview, I don't quite know how to, how to um, uh, describe it, um, uh, in order to explore some of the issues I've just um, outlined. Our interviewer tonight, and I only imagine she will do her best to straddle something between, what I'm hoping for is something between Kirsty Walk from Newsnight and Kirsty Young from uh, Desert Island Discs, some, you know, some, some, something like that, Maura. Is of course Moira Wallace, uh, Provost of Oriel College and one of the other three organisers of this lecture series. Moira is of course a woman of significant achievement in her own right. Before becoming the first female head of Oriel, she worked for more than 20 years in senior civil service roles across Whitehall. She served as a private secretary to Prime Ministers Major and Blair, established and led the first Cabinet Office Social Exclusion Unit, was Director General of Criminal Justice and of Policing, before being appointed Permanent Secretary to the Department of Energy and Climate Change. Moira has been a committed champion of gender equality while here at the university, all her life I'm sure, but particularly while here at the university, and has been a, an indispensable member of the organising group for this series. So thank you for being our, our interviewer, Moira. And so now that brings me to the important task of telling you a little bit about tonight's speaker, the Right Honourable Helen Clark. And I'm afraid it can only be a little bit, because her career has been so extensive and so distinguished, I've only got time here to touch on a few of the highlights. I know that you want to hear her and not me. As many of you will know, Helen Clark was the 37th Prime Minister of New Zealand, <coughs> Excuse me. a former administrator of the United Nations Development Programme, UNDP, and chair of the United Nations Development Group. What you might not know is that she was the first woman to assume both of these very senior positions um, at the UN, and uh, as you will know, the second woman to uh, uh, the, the second female prime minister of her country. She came to the role of prime minister after an extensive parliamentary and ministerial career, holding numerous cabinet positions in the Labour government, including Minister of Housing, Minister of Health, and Minister of Conservation. 
A committed egalitarian, Helen says, I deeply detest social distinction and snobbery, and in that lies my strong aversion to titular honours. And so I'm not going to irritate her by listing all the accolades and honours um, she's received, though I will just slip in that she was recently voted one of Forbes magazine's most powerful women in the world. But instead of honours, I'm going to just quickly outline some of the things that she has striven for and achieved in her various professional positions. I think it can be summarised by saying that Helen has been an unwavering advocate for progressive politics and equality of all peoples. She's been a champion of inclusive and sustainable development, LGBTI rights, and the full inclusion and empowerment of women in development, including advocating for sexual reproductive health and rights and an end to violence against women. Putting some of this into practice within UNDP herself, during her tenure there, the ratio of women to men reached 50%. Under her leadership, her government prioritized high levels of investment in education, health and the well-being of families and older citizens, the reconciliation and settlement of historical grievances with indigenous people, and, particularly salient in current political times, the development of an inclusive multicultural and multi-faith society. Helen, thank you so much for being with us tonight, making time for this. Colleagues and guests, please join me in welcoming Helen Clark. marks the start of a brilliant uh, interviewing career for me, so uh, what, a, what a daunting guest to start with, Helen, it's a great pleasure for me also to start the conversation. I need to emphasise, I'm just here to start the conversation, uh, I'm not going to hog Helen, um, because I'm sure lots of people in the audience will have questions, so that's a bit of an encouragement to be thinking up questions and things you'd like to explore, for when I look around I want to see lots of hands shooting out, but I, but I get to start the conversation off. And uh, Helen, the first question really is just, you know, how do you get to be Prime Minister? Tell us a little bit about, about the past. How, you know, how did you get from wherever you started to be Prime Minister? Well, it's a long road, isn't it? Mm. And uh, it's, uh, I mean, I come from uh, a farming family in uh, rural New Zealand, obviously, near Hamilton, for those of you familiar uh, with New Zealand and had parents who were very committed to education of uh, me and my sisters. I had no brothers, and I always think that was a really lucky break, <laughs> because if you are on a farming family, boys tend to get to do things that girls don't. So if there are no boys, the girls do everything. So I grew up really expecting that girls could and did do, did do anything. Uh, so you know, I had a pattern of life you'd be familiar with. Of, um, of I went to a boarding school in Auckland because schooling wasn't so readily available uh, where we lived, and then on to the University of Auckland. And uh, perchance, as my fourth subject, because one tends to enrol in what one knew at, at school, which was English and history and German, I enrolled in political studies because my family had always had political interests, and I thought, oh, that could be interesting. Well, the rest is history, I guess, uh, that uh, I went on through uh, to uh, teach in the political studies department, but also to become very active uh, in politics uh, from, I guess, the late 1960s, uh, which was a time of tremendous uh, ferment on campuses around the world, if you think uh, of uh, what was happening with student uprisings in France and in, and in Germany. 
the uh, very large student mobilizations in the United States. So what, were you on demos then? Oh, absolutely. Oh, excellent. Absolutely. But, you know, I, I worked out that uh, you could demonstrate all you like, but it didn't change governments. You had to get rather more uh, involved. And that's why I ended up joining, joining the Labour Party and uh, eventually becoming a member of Parliament. And then from the time I became an MP until the time I became Prime Minister, it was 18 years, it was, it was quite a long time. And then I spent nine years in that position, so a long journey. And, you know, let's look at maybe once you were an MP, or you became a junior minister, didn't you? And, um, no, never a junior minister. Oh, sorry, a minister. Quite <laughs> <laughs> not, a minister. Um, you know, what helped you develop? to a point where you were thinking I could be Prime Minister or someone else was thinking how about her as Prime Minister? Uh, Did I, you have mentors, you know? Well, I had mentors uh, when I was at university. Mm. I had a, a professor of political studies and an associate professor who were very, very interested in, in the senior students and put a lot of time into, you know, su supporting us and, and uh, and talking with us, so don't underestimate the role as faculty you, you have with uh, nurturing students uh, and their sense of what they, they could be. And also when I began to sort of rise up the Labour Party ranks, there, there were you know, people well up in that who were interested in me and, and what I could do. So that, that was very valuable. Of course, by the time you get into Parliament, uh, in a sense you're in a very competitive position because everyone goes into Parliament wanting to be a minister. So uh, there's not too much mentoring around there and you really need your old circles of friends and, and family uh, keeping the support base warm for you at, at, at that point. Um, but I eventually did become a minister. I never, never dreamed that I would end up as, as Prime Minister at any point really until uh, the late 1980s when the Prime Minister Day resigned and some people said, why don't you run for the job? And I said, no, 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 I'm not ready. And that was true, I wasn't ready. But I did become Deputy Prime Minister at that point. I probably wasn't ready for that either. Uh, but uh, there we are. I mean, five years, four years later, I was the leader of the party and the leader of the opposition and I had then to fight through two terms uh, to become Prime Minister. Just can I just explore the the ready bit because you know a lot of us read as women read that men always think they're ready and women never think they're ready and uh, what for you defined readiness when did you feel ready? Well, I, I think you have to have confidence in yourself when you take mm. these steps up, and I felt uh, that two years into being a minister, I wasn't ready to aim for the top job. Mm. I, at, at that point, I was. Uh, 39 years old, and uh, I mean, heavens, uh, Mr. Macron has become the president of France at, at 39. But it wasn't, you know, so common if you're going back to the yeah. late 1980s to see people of, of that age go through the top. So I, I don't regret any of the years that I spent, if you like, in training because by the time I got there, I knew exactly what I wanted to do and and how I would uh, lead a government. And I got three terms, so I can't complain. Yeah. But he obviously did it well. Um, so, I mean, as Rebecca read out your achievements, there's an enormous amount to choose from in the next question, but of the things that you've achieved, are there one or two that you would pick on as having given you real, the, the greatest personal satisfaction? I mean, it's really quite hard to pick. <laughs> it, it is hard to pick, and you tend to go more for 
you know, substantive things that happened rather than to say, well, the greatest thing that ever happened was I was able to lead three governments. But that, of course, gave the platform to be able to do things with that government and, and with a parliamentary majority yes. for what we were doing. So I, I think for me, uh, probably the most significant was to see unemployment fall quite radically. And for a lot of the time I was Prime Minister, you could say unemployment was at what is considered the clearance rate in the Western mm. economy, which is you know, three and a half uh, to four percent. And that gave a lot of people opportunity. And then uh, the dignity of being able to stand on their own feet and not uh, not have to queue for things. Uh, uh, so yeah, I regard that as important. Okay. Um, so I imagine at various points in his career, you must have experienced sexism. Um, so. You know, any tips on how to deal with it, how to recognise it, how to get over it, <laughs> ignore it? Well, there's, there's different views on this. I mean, some of you may be familiar with Julia Gillard taking head on Tony Abbott. And she sliced him up and spat him out the other side in a memorable speech in, in Parliament. Uh, but um, I didn't ever handle things that way. And in all truth, by the time I got to be Prime Minister, we'd sort of got over that mm. stuff. That was dealt with at an earlier stage. As I said, uh, you know, coming from a family where girls did everything, and going to a girls' grammar school, and then you know, going on to the university where you know, merit obviously was a uh, consideration, uh, I didn't face too many obstacles until I put my hand up to be a parliamentary candidate uh, for a safe Labour electorate, and then the muttering started that oh, she won't do very well in that seat because it's a working man's seat. Yeah. Well, most of these working men did have wives, uh, but that presumably wasn't considered terribly important. So, anyway, there, there was that, and I, I remember, you know, at the time uh, there were 92 members of the New Zealand Parliament, and the numbers in the 1981 election, when I was first elected, doubled from four to eight. Mm. And people said the women are taking over. You know. <laughs> 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 if, only, if only we had. Uh, so um, I remember getting in a, in a taxi to go into Parliament as a, as a brand new MP, and the taxi driver said to me, where are you going? And I said, I'm going to Parliament. And he said, oh, you're going to go and see all those MPs. <laughs> it never occurred to him yeah. that a young woman would be an MP. So, so there, was all, there was all that sort of stuff. And then, uh, you know, if you were, I suppose, a blue stocking coming from a university environment, you weren't considered terribly clubbable. Mm -hmm. And I often uh, speak about the three forms of recreation that were available to New Zealand members of Parliament. One of them exercised this muscle in the bar, mm -hmm. another exercised these muscles with the card school, mm -hmm. and a third one exercised these muscles with a billiard cue, none of which I have the slightest interest in at all. Uh, so you didn't tend to sort of move in, in those circles. So it was, it was interesting working one's way up in that, uh, in that kind, of, uh, kind of culture. But uh, anyway, I, I think you know, we go into things to change them and make them more responsive and, uh, and open to women for you know, current and future generations. So 
Yeah, that by the time I got to PM, that that stuff had been dealt with, and mm. people were kind of used to the fact that mm. women were going to get to the top. I was the first elected uh, prime minister, mm. but uh, there was a prime, woman prime minister two years before me. Mm. There was a party of room coup, which I think you're kind of familiar with. You know, mm. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> these things right. happen. <laughs> yeah. Uh, so yeah, so in a sense, she cut the ice as well. But more recently, uh, you know, you've written a little bit about sexism in bigger organisations. So the whole Secretary General thing, you've wondered whether that's actually a feasible thing for a woman to get. Do you want to well, I say, us about that a bit more? Yes, I, I say I never hit a glass ceiling I couldn't crack till mm. I got there. Mm. <laughs> and, uh, but nor am I saying that uh, the gender mm. was the only factor in a woman not being secretary general, there are a whole lot of whole yeah. lot of factors. Uh, but uh, you know, let, let's face it: most member states of the United Nations have never had a woman in a top leadership mm. position, unlike Britain, unlike uh, New Zealand, and a small number of of uh, other countries. So they do tend to have a certain image of what mm. a secretary general will be like, and it doesn't look like me or you. Mm. Mm. Uh, well, let's go on to the sort of international front a little bit because, you know, you've had this amazing role at the UNDP and you've had, a, you know, an incredible view of organisations that we all depend on to say solve the world's problems and you've been quite vocal about how they need to change. So, so talk to us a little bit about what you think the priorities are for them to change and what the prospects are. Well, there's, there's three parts to the UN mandate from the 1945 Charter. Uh, one is peace and security, one is human rights, and one is development. Mm -hmm. now, and for development, also re, you know, country-based work and humanitarian affairs. Now, the truth is that what does the UN greatest credit around the world is the development and humanitarian presence, because people are out there working actively and helping make a difference to people's lives in the most abject circumstances. Uh, so I don't have criticism uh, there, and we have too many agencies, but that's by the by. Member states are very good at setting things up and not very good at closing them down, so I don't expect that to, to change a lot, but it was my job to try and get a bit better coordinated than it, than it was. Uh, the human rights pillar obviously has a, a very clear mandate, and it does what it can in, in the member state limitations. But I, I do think that uh, peace and security uh, pillar is struggling uh, mm. quite a lot. Um, you know, the Charter was drawn up in 1945 on the ashes of, of World War II and the objective was, as it had been with the League of Nations, to stop mm. another war like the one that had just been experienced and was so catastrophic uh, from mm. recurring. So if you want to judge it against the standard of has there been another world war, you would say success, but that doesn't mean there's not a lot of conflict. And I think the UN has had tremendous difficulty uh, adjusting to the, the new types of, of mm. conflicts, the protracted civil wars, really, and they still had you know, proxies uh, behind them. Uh, so you know, for every um, case that comes before the Security Council, uh, well, not for every, but for quite a lot, uh, there will be great powers with a particular interest, and that's not particularly conducive to the international community taking a position and uh, being able to intervene. And to be fair, it's not necessarily that clear in some cases what you would do if you could intervene. These are extremely difficult um, uh, situations. Um, but uh, I think uh, that 
we need to be much more on the front foot uh, in diffusing uh, tensions. And actually, that takes you really back into uh, the support for the humanitarian and development actors who are on the ground, do see things happening, can uh, be helping to you know, try and pave the way for more peaceful and inclusive societies. But money is always short for these things and uh, you know, never, never short uh, at the point when there's been a crisis and everything's tipped over and then you send in a peacekeeping force, which is, of course, too late anyway. So I think uh, adjusting to... Uh, the new types of conflicts is, is rather important. Uh, then you have the long-standing structural issues, which are uh, related to the composition of the Security Council of Reed in 1945. And you know, Declaration of Interest, New Zealand from 1945 said the veto was a bad thing. It is a bad thing. Uh, I guess in 1945, those who were trying to put some limits around the Security Council's ability to make decisions weren't familiar with the kind of qualified voting uh, systems that you can have in organisations now, like the European Union. So it was just a blanket veto power to five <coughs> countries. Five countries who, in effect, were on the right side of the ledge at the end of World War II. But the world doesn't look like that anymore. And uh, you have uh, you know, clearly major geopolitical forces not represented uh, among the permanent membership. And the debate goes round in circles as to what to do about that. Uh, can you expand the council? If so, who? Uh, some of the obvious candidates for the expansion have uh, matching countries who are very opposed to them ever getting that. Then there's the issue of, well, would the veto go to the new permanent members? Well, that would be a very bad idea, but then the ones who think they should be the new permanent members, so they shouldn't be second-class citizens. So round we go in circles, and it is very difficult to resolve any of this. But the, the problem is that, that if the UN is not seen to be relevant uh, in this vital sphere of, of peace and security, uh, then you know, what happens? And you, don't, you don't want to break down where people start taking the law into their, their own hands. And can you, do you think it, it's possible to imagine a political process that would lead to some of those changes? Well, what, might, what might cause that to happen? Well, I, th I think there's going to have to be an expansion. Mm -hmm. I personally think it will have to be an expansion without the veto power going uh, to uh, the new permanent members. I think it would need to be based on uh, a regular review mm -hmm. of the permanent membership because otherwise you run the risk in 30, 40, 50 years' time of the decisions of today looking as silly as you know, the composition mm -hmm. of 1945 <laughs> looks now. Uh, but that, that's the territory in which the discussion needs to happen. We could have promotions and relegations. Like <laughs> <laughs> and no one likes relegation. No, no. Yes, yeah, fascinating. Um, well, still on the international front, uh, migration, I mean, it's a related issue, really. We're, we're seeing enormous political upsets in Europe and the rest of the world as the world faces such enormous migration, refugee crises. Uh, just focusing on Europe, what would your advice be to European leaders on how to handle this? Well, you have uh, two main sort of directions of the migration. Uh, the migration uh, fueled by uh, conflict-wracked uh, communities where people are seeking safety from that, obviously Syria, uh, 
uh, and don't discount the extent to which people flowing out of Afghanistan are also seeking uh, safety as well, or out of you know, uh, parts of, of Iraq. Um, but then you also have the migration that is fueled by poverty of opportunity, uh, and that's coming up out of uh, sub-Saharan Africa and the, and the Horn of Africa. In a sense, that migration should be more straightforward to, to deal with, uh, because you know, Europe actually needs migrant labour. It's not that popular, often to say it, but where would Europe be without the migrant labour from the south? Actually, Europe's problems will come when people don't want to leave home and come and do uh, the jobs here, really. Uh, so, in, in my opinion, uh, Europe should be looking at more legal avenues for migration uh, to, uh, you know, basically fit the reality that it needs, it needs migrant labour. It should make it possible uh, for people to come uh, to the positions uh, where they're required in, in Europe uh, without having to make uh, desperate and dangerous journeys across the Mediterranean. Now, going back to the, the other flow, I think uh, for Europe, uh, absolutely need to be uh, investing in, uh, in support for people caught up in turmoil. I think the diplomatic weight of Europe needs to be in behind uh, settlement of uh, uh, protracted conflicts like the war in, in Syria. The action at the moment is really with Russia and with Turkey, whereas the European Union voice or the, um, or the voice of the UN very much uh, sidelined. Uh, I think uh, also that leaving one's home is, is a last resort for people and there's a lot more that can be done to support people within conflict-stressed countries like Syria. Uh, and that's a, a drum I've been beating for, for years, uh, with, with some success, to get more support for people where they are displaced in their own country. And then more support for uh, the refugees and the host communities and countries on the border of the affected countries, like Lebanon and Jordan and Turkey. Uh, and uh, Kurdish region of Iraq and Egypt have taken a lot of people. And it, it is phenomenal, really, when you consider that the migrant flow in 2015 was considered an incredible crisis by Europe when a million people sort of came over uh, through, the, through um, the, the Balkans route. Uh, but Lebanon, which is the size of one small region of New Zealand, with a population of four million, has hosted yeah. over a million Syrians. Yeah. I mean, so these countries need help. Jordan has hosted, you know, so around 700,000, similar small country, uh, small population, extraordinary burden, and they were left to cope alone for quite a while. The support's starting to come now. So, you know, in general, refugees don't want to leave home unless they feel they have to, unless there's no support. Uh, if they do leave, being close to home so you can go back when things adjust is not a bad idea. But people need support to be there. Otherwise, uh, they too will undertake the desperate journeys which uh, can lead in disaster. Well, I'm, I'm having a great time uh, handing all the world's greatest problems to Helen for a solution. Um, and indeed, please do start thinking of your questions uh, because I'm about to turn to the audience to ask for them. But I, I've got a bigger... Uh, political problem for you to solve. I come to Brexit now. Um, so I think we need to make this really difficult for you. Uh, 
Uh, how would you be approaching this if you were Britain's Prime Minister and or Britain's Leader of the Opposition? Okay. <laughs> I, I think I'd be asking the British people whether they really want it. <laughs> um, well, you might say you wouldn't start from here. No. Uh, <laughs> you know, I mean, sort of, you know, speaking as a New Zealander, uh, I mean, New Zealand's fortunes changed fundamentally uh, when Britain entered the European Union because Britain was an open market for New Zealand. And that had been its function as a colony and then a dominion and, and so on. At the point of British entry to Europe, still an extraordinary proportion of New Zealand trade came here. Uh, so what New Zealand had at that time was a, a big lobby in the Commons that said, poor little New Zealand, how can we abandon it <laughs> when we go into Europe? And so the result of that was that, um, that Britain was a very, very good friend uh, to New Zealand from the position of European Union membership. So, of course, from an, a national interest point of view, uh, you know, it, it's a loss for New Zealand not to have that exceptionally close friend by history, culture, and the rest of it uh, in, in, in Europe. Um, but, I mean, I, I often find with questions like this that we all hear so much about British politics and issues and you know, it's always a danger to comment on them and say you, you're, <laughs> it's your own country because really I have, have no say over it. But uh, I think for something as fundamental as this, uh, this question, uh, a one-stage referendum was not a good idea. Now that's the way it was set up and whether that's ever reversible, I don't know. But I would have thought it's very much in, in Britain's interest to keep access uh, to the single market, whether it's inside the Union or outside. And it's going, if it wants to keep access to that market, uh, if it wants to preserve the status of the city, and I think that's highly problematic now, um, it's going to need to swallow a number of dead rats, which <laughs> it uh, might not like swallowing. Mm. So I, I was trying to contact Helen, uh, and I I thought I was only one continent behind her. She was in the US, she was in Germany, and she seemed to stop over in Saudi Arabia on the way. And you're everywhere, you've done these amazingly fast-paced jobs. What's your personal secret, and where do you get the resilience and the energy that keeps you going and juggling all this stuff? Because the people here are going to aspire to careers like that, so, you know, share your secret. <laughs> Well, I think if, if you really like what you're doing, you will you know, make superhuman efforts, but you shouldn't kill yourself in the process. Uh, so, you know, it is important to keep fit. See, always have the fit bit on. Um, 10,000 steps around Oxford. Uh, you have to eat properly, you have to get enough sleep, and not every night you do get enough sleep, but over a period of time you need to catch up with sleep. So it's really just always keeping that perspective that, you know, we're not machines, we do need fuel, you know, we do need uh, rest, we need, do need balance, we do need to make time for our families and our, and, and our friends. You just can't be work 24-7. You know, most people, you know, later in life when, uh, when they're asked, um, you know, did I work too much, they'll probably say yes. But, and, and you do have to put the effort in, uh, but don't, you know, sacrifice your health and and your family for it. Well, Helen, I just want to thank you for this conversation. I want to thank the, the audience for a wonderful, wonderful set of uh, questions. The conversation is not over. 
because it's now, uh, despite what you just said about eating healthily, there's probably a huge <laughs> amount of alcohol out there. Um, so you are invited, everyone's invited to come and have a drink. And uh, Helen, you've been amazingly generous with your time and so so many interesting, thought-provoking things, so much wisdom. I've been, I've been taking notes. I've people have. Uh, so thank you so much for coming. You've been an absolutely fantastic speaker uh, at, our, at our occasion. So thank you very much. Thank you.